This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to The Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known guests about their lives, their careers and navigating those difficult moments on the way. I'm Charles Poe Phillips and with me is Jim Daly. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> that sounded like the start of a song. Hello, hello, hello. hello, hello. <laughs> and how are you? Maybe we should start the pods by doing I've been songs. to Maybe the musicals. bathroom and done a big poo. <laughs> well, it's like living with my three-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> she's upset that, that she's in a real toilet humour phase. Oh, I, I love that phase. I've, I've not grown out of that, unfortunately. At the age of 45. <laughs> everything is poo. Like, everything is poo. And it's just apparently it's hilarious. Yeah. And then she was saying last night, she's waking up in the middle of the night at the moment. And like, uh, she is potty training. So mm. I guess it is poo is her world. But um everything's toilet she was saying she come up with a game the game's called toilet and one of them has to be a toilet the other one has to be toilet roll <laughs> maria where are you getting these so ideas funny, from? Isn't it? so funny oh dear anyway kids kids are hilarious um what, what's happening oh what's happening oh all sorts you know it's january it's coming to an end well we're in february now aren't we? i think no it's february yeah yeah january so january's finished i think i have to admit i think We've, I've been feeling a bit January bluesy. I think that's uh, quite a lot of people have been saying that. But now there's a little bit more sunshine's coming out. And yeah. February apparently is the month where things start to happen. So I've been told. Okay. So hopefully lots of exciting things will happen during February and we'll be all we'll be all excited and happy again. January does January is rubbish, isn't it? It drags. Like, it, it, it's so I long, isn't it? Just, it feels like two months. It does. I think just even being in February, I think, is mm. uh, is positive enough. Um can I, speaking of, can I do a quick shout out to my solo show? It's, it is yeah. this week. So it's the last time I'll do it. But this this Thursday, the 9th of Feb, I'm doing my Edinburgh show at the Bill Murray Pub in Angel, which is a brilliant, brilliant comedy venue. Uh, I think it's at eight quid. It's at 6.30 p.m. Um, and it's a four-star rated stand-up comedy oh, so good, isn't it? show. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It's very silly, family-friendly. Um, and tickets are available from angelcomedy.co.uk. 
uh, if you're in town, fancy coming along for an hour, then I'd love to see you there. And I'll be in the bar afterwards as well. To my old over. my old band, Little Ten, had us. We had a song called Bill Murray. Really? Well, I mean, he is. He's just. I just think I, I was about to say, oh, potential 200th episode guest, but I think we're probably too late for that. Um, but he is a legend, isn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, one of the lyrics in it. Uh, I didn't write the lyrics. Our singer Joe did, but one of the lyrics was um, "Looks like Nicholson without the glow," um, which uh, which was great. But um, our bass players, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So like you know, obviously Jack Nicholson. So I can get the reference. But our, our bass player's brother didn't know the lyrics and thought the lyric was "He looks like Jackson without the glove." <laughs> very different. Song. Which very very different. Yeah. Um, anyway, that just popped into my head. Uh, very great. random and niche. A reference to my old band but you can listen to that song on spotify oh uh, there you go yeah there we go i top. might do that and sing jackson without the glove along, along yeah yeah i would um look we we need to talk about today's guest who oh, oh my, my god word. what an honor and a privilege to have on uh, an absolute legend of uh of the bbc i mean 50 plus years as a bbc correspondent uh mainly as a foreign correspondent and has been in multiple war zones uh, and conflicts and in the most difficult circumstances on earth uh, it's the one and only john simpson who you know i think we both when he started just when he started talking we his voice we just he's yeah. like so uh, so recognizable you know there's so many of those bbc institutions i mean we've had obviously we've had john motson on the podcast before and he's another one of those people whose voice is so distinctive you you yeah. recognize it straight away and john's Simpson's got the same thing. It's very, very um, recognisable, and um, yeah, and and what a conversation! I mean, so much stuff that, and we, we could have talked to him for hours and hours. There's so much stuff that we didn't cover, but we, I mean, hopefully, we covered enough stuff um, for our listeners. But uh, what a brilliant, brilliant person, and what a lovely human being as well. Like, just great to be in his company for an hour. Oh my word! What a nice guy. Like I just and and actually I mean the the BBC war correspondent you know I mean the the the, the daddy the daddy <laughs> of war corresponding I mean the guys you know at one point he said he's he's counted ten times his life's been at risk I mean that the commitment to the job there and we do talk, that does come up and we ask him about that it's just incredible really and what an inspiration he's probably been for hundreds of maybe even more reporters down the years since to get into to journalism and just but just a lovely guy like just so easy to talk to and just but yeah another one we could have sat down absolutely for hours as well and we do i did ask him what i thought was quite a silly question that turned into a fantastic story right at the end for our patrons Mm. i won't even say about his first day on the job as a reporter so it's like from from a sitcom um, or from a movie so do do check that out in our Patreon, where we do extra content each week at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-T-R-E-O-N.com slash blank podcast. Um, but just, oh, John, what a legend. Just, yeah. I mean, these, these I love doing this pod anyway, but like this is one of those ones that's like put a spring in my step for the rest of my day. That just what a... Yeah, and I just guy. want to go back. I'm looking yeah. forward, I'm actually looking forward to like, you know, editing it. Like, not that we edit much yeah, of the yeah. conversation, but like just going back and putting the music on and everything. Um don't yeah for, for people who don't know we don't we try not to edit the actual conversations try and keep them as live but uh yeah i'm just looking forward to listening back to all the you know wonderful things he says and obviously we asked him 
you know, quite a lot of stuff about his career and stuff. But then we were asking him sort of some of the insights on the, the current conflict in, in the Ukraine as well, yeah. which is obviously very knowledgeable and insightful about. I mean, very, very, um, that was very, very um, interesting. And I, I took a lot on board from that as well. But just so many different anecdotes and like, you know, just the, the various different things that he's... Uh, been involved with and seen you know and you know there's some emotional bits in there isn't there as well like i got you know yeah. i think both of us probably got a bit emotional and john did as well so yeah lots of lots of brilliant moments yeah i mean again if you're talking about you know the the authority really on yeah. the conflict in ukraine so that's all obviously very very mm. interesting as well and some interesting insight mm. into, into putin and the sort of man he is as well so well, so and someone, from this yeah, one. and someone John has met m on multiple occasions. So I think yeah, you know, he's exactly uh, he's in a very good position to to talk wisely on that stuff. I think we should just get into it because we, we we've, we've teased it enough well, now. But this is this is an absolute banger of an episode. I've got a couple of tweets I'd like to read out first, Jim, if I may, because we we haven't had some okay. any tweets for a little while. So after the Martin O'Neill uh, episode, which was uh, seems to go down very well with our listeners, and uh, we I think we've garnered some new listeners as well. So we've got washed up cards on Twitter. He says, "I'm so thrilled." have now come across your podcast love listening to the martin o'neill um episode which was this was really lovely um it's very nice to have new listeners we're always welcome um and people do want to get in touch with us jim they can can't they yeah can i just say washed up cards i've just clicked on their account um we don't normally do shout outs to people but they create cards using bits of plastic washed up on beaches around the oh, uk oh amazing um, lovely so i'm gonna do them a shout out at wash.cards i'm gonna follow them now from all our accounts um definitely worth following i would say because that is that's brilliant superb yeah and thank you for for, for listening to the pod yeah and well. i've got another one here from margaret Ann. so she's margaret mac 53 she listened to the andrew gower one she said what a smashing episode great to hear andrew gower and she also complimented us on the picture we chose of him as well so it's obviously one that she uh, she's obviously a bigger fan of Andrew, and uh, yeah, he's looking very dashing in it. To be fair, I mean, there are no bad photos of Andrew Gower. No, no, he's a he's a good looking chap. We could have we could have picked we could have picked any photo. Um, but anyway, yes, you can get in contact with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Our handle is the exact the same for all of them. It is at Blank Pod. It is indeed. Um, I think, and we'd love to hear from you whether you enjoy the episode or whether you like the photos. We'll, we'll take it. We'll take any feedback. We'll take it. Right, I think we should crack on with this week's episode, shouldn't we? This is this is an absolute banger of an episode, um, and you're going hopefully like us, like Joel, me and Giles. Once the voice kicks in, yeah, from our guest, you will be taken you'll back know. to hearing countless radio reports and TV reports. This is the one and only, the legend that is John Simpson on the Blank Podcast. <laughs> John Simpson, thank you so much for being with us today. I mean, it is a genuine pleasure and privilege and honour to have you on the, the podcast. Huge, huge fan of what, all you what you do and obviously the remarkable career you've had. Now, with our podcast, we generally start at the beginning of people's journeys. And uh, I, I wanted to know really what, as a child, were you, it feels like, you know, obviously all the stuff you've done, you know, and being a, a journalist and a reporter, you you have you've lived a life of curiosity, and I wondered if that was something you had as a as a young child. Were you a curious child? 
I was, and I was quite an adventurous uh, kid too. I, I was an only child and uh, we lived in the depths of the country for a, a lot of the time in Suffolk. Um, and um, it was just, and my mother, I think quite reasonably left my dad um, and and me um, when I was six, I think. And so we, uh, it was just him and me for most of the time. So it was quite lonely and there wasn't, you know, there was always the kind of things to explore and 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 do and look at, and he himself was an immensely um, sociable, quite a d very difficult man, but very sociable and great fun actually. And when he was a kid, um, when he was, I think, uh, either fifteen or sixteen, not sure which, he ran away to sea from his parents, who were also pretty difficult. And he went and became a steward on on uh, the uh, piano uh, lines around the world. Wow. Um, and um, he had a fantastic time for 10 years traveling to Australia and India and South Africa. and everything. So I had this this uh, uh, kind of background always from him about other countries, other places and I, I suppose it just kind of sank in, really, and I was quite—I um, was quite adventurous. I mean, I did things that um, you know no sensible parent would allow a kid to do. Um, you know, climbing trees and climbing up buildings and exploring places, and um, so it was a, a lonely childhood. But it wasn't a sort of con contemplative one it was quite a an exciting one in some ways so so even though your maybe your world at the time was quite small your horizons were much much bigger whereas I guess a lot of people sometimes their horizons are smaller maybe but you clearly had your mind or your heart set on these far-reaching places yeah exactly that um my dad always used to say oh God, you know, London, when we live, because we lived in London for part of the time, uh, London, you know, it's so bloody provincial, <laughs> you know, they don't know anything about about the outside world. Well, that was the 1950s. Um, it ain't provincial any longer, I'm glad saying. He would have loved it, actually, now. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, that, that was right. There was always that sense that, you know, you should be, that, the uh, any sensible person would have their eyes on a wider horizon that it not just you know this this house this street this suburb this village this whatever but um you know there's a whole world out there and by god you ought to take part in it yeah absolutely yeah and so did you i mean obviously your your father traveled a lot did you did you were you able to travel yourself a lot at that time with him or was that something that he just did kind of solo no uh dear old boy i mean we did have our differences but he was always prepared to uh to fund my my travel so uh, he and i i mean it was i was uh, i think probably 17 or 18 before i actually went abroad oh, okay. for the first time and characteristically it was in the middle of the awful winter of 1962 to three and 
he got sick of everything and he said, we're going to, <laughs> I promise you this is true. He said, we're going to go to Casablanca. <laughs> I said, where's it showing? <laughs> <laughs> you bloody idiot. The place, the place. And we went to Casablanca. Again, you know, nobody ever went to Casablanca in 1961, 62. And then um, just before I, I went to university, uh, he funded a trip for me to America and I wandered around uh, for four or five, five, I think, months of extraordinary adventures with, uh, I travelled around, I was driven around by um, a, a mafia kind of hitman. Wow. Um, and he told me all about it all in detail that I didn't want to know. <laughs> I'd still finally get out of my mind. Um and then at the end of that trip, we we had a bust up in the end, and uh, I I left him. Uh, he was very, I have to say, you know, very nice hitman, <laughs> very pleasant. And, uh, and of all um, the hitmans I've met, he's probably the nicest. He was, I think, probably the most charming. Yes, and and then I I met a girl in uh, um, well in Boston, but she came from Southern California. So I got back on my dear old father, who didn't have very much money, was suddenly landed with um, the prospect that I was going to go through as many of the university holidays as I could to Southern California, which in that those days was like saying, uh, you know, I'd like to go to Tonga or, or, or something. I mean, it was it was a huge way away. And he he funded three trips, I think, of of mine to Southern California. And then I married the girl in the end, and um, that was all very very pleasant. But um, you know, there was a a sense always that the world was there. That it it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just him and me, and it wasn't just in our house. That there was an enormous world, and. You know, he. I think his line was, "I don't want to." You know, I'm not really very keen on spending all this money, but on the other hand, it's a good cause, which I don't think many people would necessarily have said at that stage. Yeah, absolutely. I've got so many follow-up questions from this. Firstly, I'm, I'm wondering how many people went to Casablanca uh, <laughs> after the movie came out in the 40s and 50s. Oh, and the Casablanca but tourism but board must have done amazing. Can I tell you somebody who did go? He and I were there on New Year's Eve, 1962 to three. And um, there was a, a really odd looking woman. I mean, I, I, I could see she was very attractive, but she acted very weird. And uh, I said to my dad, have you, have you seen that weird woman? This was a, a party in a restaurant. No, it wasn't a party, really, but it was a, one of those things where, you know, you 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 came and joined in for the New Year festivities. And, um, and he looked over and he said, my God, my God, that's Shah Jagal. <laughs> and he, so he made, my father had to say was that the, every, everybody found him amazingly sort of good looking and, uh, a rather glamorous figure and um she made eye contact with him he made eye contact with Jaja Gabor by the end of the evening I said when she was unfortunately there with a young much younger kind of toy boy who didn't take to my father at all and so at the end of the evening uh, um I said well you know um 
time to go back to the hotel, I suppose. So my dad said, yeah, yeah you go back. And he didn't come back for two days. Wow. And when he, <laughs> he had a, a tremendous black eye. I mean, obviously somebody, either either Jaja Gabor, but more likely, I think, the toy boy, had uh, had had uh, dropped one on him. And I said, hey, how about that? But, you know, and he said, look, don't ever ask. About it, okay? <laughs> I, I never actually ever did. What, so. what happens in Casablanca stays in Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> I knew John. I knew talking to you would be full of stories. We're ten minutes in already. We've got travels to the mafia and getting punched <laughs> by Jacques <laughs> This is an episode for the ages. Um, it's I, I um, it's so lovely hearing about your travels and I was lucky enough to be brought up by parents who also took me abroad from a very early age we moved to Hong Kong when I was six and then Dubai a year later yeah and then Spain for a few years and I also later in life got to live in Southern California for a bit as well so um, very much appreciate I actually love the people there love that place Um, so it's I'm very much sort of in the same realm as you as, as as this idea of the world is bigger than and if you're lucky enough to go and lucky enough to experience it but what I'm really hearing is this support you had from your dad you know and and often when we start off in life we do need support and we do need people in our corner and 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 be they mentors or support systems and and it really sounds like you had that with your dad and and I'm wondering if actually maybe this fantastic career you've had where you've gone and traveled all around and seen stuff and told thousands of stories you know a lot of it comes down to the support of your dad in those early travel days. Oh, it, it really does. And and he was a great um, kind of raconteur. So like uh, with most of us, I suppose, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted, always wanted to sort of emulate my father, impress him. Um, uh, and I mean, he died now, what, 1980? What's that, 40 something years ago? Yeah. Uh, poor old boy. He said to me, <laughs> He rang me up, actually was not very long before he died, and he said, great news. I've worked out that I can live in comfort. I've got enough money to live in comfort for the rest of my life as long as I die next Thursday. <laughs> and that was very much his, uh, that was very much him. I, I miss him every single day. I really, really, very difficult man. I'm not... You know, I'm probably making him sound as though he was, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Charming, but he was uh, he was really difficult. I had a tremendous temper and um, really, really quite hard to uh, to live with. But nevertheless, um, great old boy. Without getting too psychological, often a lot of the char- charming people are quite difficult, actually. A lot, a lot of the times it is a mask for deeper feelings or deeper issues in, in, in many ways. And I think a lot of the sort of more outgoing people tend to be people that actually maybe do have other problems. So that's not, we don't normally get psychological on the podcast like that. But I just, <laughs> yeah, that does tend to be the way sometimes, doesn't it? I think it does. I think it is. Yes. So going on from that, so obviously 17, 18, you were, you were traveling to California and stuff. And I guess by that time you were, you were going into university was, was, you know, obviously what you have gone into, was that something that you were thinking about doing at the time? What what were your sort of hopes and dreams around that time, I guess? Well, I, I, I loved, I learned that I loved traveling. Um, and I also had a, a knack for writing. 
um i was one of those uh one of those kids and i can see it with my own son now who's now he's now uh 17 um exactly the same you know idle <laughs> uh not prepared to put the work in but when it comes to it he's got a writing style that makes uh what he's saying attractive even though he's probably saying only about 60 or 70 percent of what brighter kids uh um better informed kids will do he's got a way of of a, attracting the eye of his of his teachers and and i had the same i did the same and i had the uh, good luck to attract the eye of um you know examiners and um so that was that was i worked harder i think than my son does i'm not quite sure uh, but um uh, nevertheless you know it did it did kind of um uh, come to something so i i always associated started associating you know writing on the one hand uh writing stuff that i thought was interesting and and the desire to travel and so, you know, I, I wanted, therefore, I wanted to be a journalist. I did a lot of student journalism and I, I that was all I could really think of. And I was fortunate in the end um, that the BBC uh, uh, hired me. They did, it turned out, I only found this out years and years later, I was a bit of a, a pig in a poke. They thought... Oh. I'd got um, a double first at Cambridge. Um, I think because my director of studies, who was a really good friend, wrote a really glowing um, report on me for the BBC before I actually did the final examinations, which I got a really crap to too. (laughs) And, you, you know, the BBC never asked me, did you actually get a first? And so I think they thought they were getting something an awful lot better than they actually did but you know i've been with them now for 50 years from them to chuck me out on those grounds lots of other grounds to chuck me out on uh i it's so funny i had a very similar experience at university because i i got a tutu in my i did journalism at university and i got a tutu in my in my final mark but my course leader called gary edwards so i'll never forget with two r's i've never seen gary spelled with two r's before um Gave me a glowing reference at the end of. I went to get a job on my local paper in 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 Kent. Glowing reference saying, and and James qualified with a strong two one. And I was thinking, no, oh. no, I didn't. Check <laughs> I my, didn't. Check my degree. Oh, I definitely didn't. But I just left it in, and no one's ever asked since. But you know, journalism is like uh, is like lots of things. It's more about character. It's more about how you behave and everything than it is necessarily about. At, you know the how big or small your brain is and um i mean i've i've uh you know of course i would say this uh naturally because i've kind of benefited from the brain character balance but now I, it's a quite interesting to watch my son doing doing very much the same thing and i as a as a uh i've never really a sort of an employer because i've always work within the BBC, but I've hired quite a few people. I'd always rather have people that show uh, evidence of, of of character 
than evidence of of just an ability to to write sensible or safe or whatever stuff. My kid uh, at, at one of his schools won the prize for the boy that you would most want to go through the desert with. And <laughs> I, great, thought, yeah. that, I thought, I, you know, all the other kids have got, you know, classics and English and French and German, and but he got the one that counted. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'll also, because although all that academic stuff, the classic stuff, that can be taught and that can be learnt, but character right. can't be. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, John, what were those first kind of um, assignments, I guess, when you joined the BBC? What were you doing at that stage? Um, well, I at first I was just a sub-editor. I shouldn't say just, but uh, I hated it. Um, uh, you had to be sort of pinpoint accurate, needlingly accurate about everything. And I, I realised that the reporters were the ones that would come back and say, God, you've never seen a dozens of people uh, arrested. And the subs would say, how many people were arrested? <laughs> oh, I have no idea. I mean, there were just loads and loads of them. And there was a lot of violence. And, you know, that that was, and I realised that I was on the kind of the been loads of people arrested side of the line rather than Reuters is saying it's 21 and now you're <laughs> saying it's 22 which is it and know? also because then if there's a complaint it's on the subs for getting the air absolutely no of course of course you can't do it without them um but um i i uh so early on i did uh i went to northern ireland um i i I, I really had to sort of fight my way to get there because I'd never had any experience of anything very much except, um, uh, well, nothing really. Um, and uh, that was that was really quite difficult, especially, you know, for the BBC right in the middle of everything. Um, and that was, I, and then I was made the BBC Ireland uh, correspondent. Um, so that, that was my first, first real sort of uh, um taste of 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 what complicated difficult stuff was you know with people complaining all the time sometimes physical violence um always a threat of physical violence but sometimes the the actuality of it uh, getting blown up getting shot at um all of those things and i came out of ireland by uh, 1975, by the time I was 31, um, you know, really quite with quite a good training about how to how to cope with the with the world and the more difficult more difficult stories. So I was really I, I was really very uh, grateful for all that. But it, it it took a lot of um, whining and and complaining and uh, pestering my bosses and everything and then the first day i was there i was um sort of uh I'm, well i was very lucky to escape with my life just uh, my own stupidity wandered into an ira funeral and behaved in a stupid way that made them think i was a an army spy and um it was only i was just rescued by a wonderful old correspondent who might happen to be walked walked down to the the cemetery with and uh he very wisely spotted me and uh 
came over. They'd got a gun out, and they one of them, the head one, had said, give him a bullet up the nostril, which meant, you know, kill him. And they were doing various horrible things to a Daily, Mail, Daily Mirror photographer in the corner of the cemetery. So, I mean, it wasn't just, um, you know, a flight of fancy. And um, this bloke, oh, wonderful, he came over and said, oh, <laughs> Oh, hello, John. Is it some kind of problem? And I, yes, that is some kind of problem. You're not going to kill me. But so uh, I went back then, uh, back to my hotel. I was very shaken up and I sat there and I thought, you know, I'm much too sensitive for this. I feel pain too easily. You know, I, I should be an arts correspondent or something like that. And then I, I don't know, I I ordered a steak and a bottle of wine on room service. And after that, I, I kind of felt a bit better. So I decided I wouldn't put in my my resignation after all. I'm glad I didn't. I mean, wow. wow that's, just, it, it, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, I was just going to, sorry, Joel. No, I was no, just, no, just going to say, as a first assignment, that is, that is proper in the deep end. It was. In terms of sort of like on the job training. Yes, well, you know, in those nowadays, you'd you'd have you know all of the sort of training, and uh, you'd have you know a, a bloke from the SAS, you know, with you, and so uh, actually probably not, but that's the, that you know that's what people like me say about the the present day uh, uh, setup and all the health and safety stuff because it's, but you know, I I mean, I'm sufficient of a of a sort of management creature to realize that that's just the way the world's gone. You can't, as one individual organization, you can't say, oh, bugger all the health and safety. We're sending out our 24 year olds to uh, the front line. You, you can't, you can't do that any longer, but you could in those days. And it, I'm, you know, I, I, I was a beneficiary of it really. Yeah. I'm still sort of, sort of slightly flabbergasted by the, you know, they're just wandering into like you just wandering into the wrong place at the wrong time. And yeah, yeah. and I, I guess that must How stupid can well, you be? I really feel stupid. And I wore, you know, a sports jacket and uh cavalry twilled trousers and and brogues because that was how I dressed in those days. And I had they'd given me the BBC had given me a magnificent little new gadget, a tiny little tape recorder about this size instead of the monster great big ewers that we had to c carry around with us. And I had this thing in my pocket and every now and then I was working for radio every now and then, every time I thought that the IRA uh, guard of honor, or whatever they call themselves who are going to fire an, a volley over the grave, I'd kind of pull this little thing out thinking, God, I'm being really smooth and clever. <laughs> and, and of course, the entire IRA leadership around the grave spotted me immediately and thought he's dressed like a, a British soldier. He must be a British soldier. Um, but um, anyway, I, you know, I've done a lot of foolish things in my time and um, that was one of the many. And I'm just fortunate enough not to have paid the price for it. Well, I was going to say, I mean, obviously you've been in countless uh, war zones and you know in in, in difficult situations um, and obviously you, you you came to sort of that particular one you you know you went you went back to your hotel and you regrouped 
Um, have there been other moments where you've thought, oh, I should go, maybe I should go and do be the arts correspondent? Because I'm sure there's been lots of hairy moments for you. There have been lots of hairy moments. I once um, worked it out that I'd had nine, well, actually 10, only one was a medical thing, um, uh, moments where my life was, you know, in the balance. That's to say, not just somewhere where there was shooting on the other side of the road, but where there was shooting perhaps in the room where I was or right beside me or some something. I've been blown up various times. Um, but um, no, I mean, I've, I've long since regarded that as just the kind of stuff that happens really you know the thing is sometimes uh, i think people get the wrong idea about these things i mean in an outfit certainly like the bbc but i think in most newspapers most other television and radio outfits nobody forces you to do these things on the contrary i mean you know they don't call the bbc auntie for nothing i mean you really got to force your way to go to these these different things uh because you know they're all they're constantly saying well you know i think you're a bit too old well they they don't say that but that's what you can tell that's what they're thinking um you know i think this is too dodgy we ought to just leave this story unreported all that kind of thing and um you you have to hammer your way through it you've got to use every means um you know clean and dirty to get to a a, a a difficult story now and on various occasions i mean i remember that we've just had the anniversary a couple of days ago of the uh, return of ayatollah khomeini to iran in 1979 and um uh, you know i i just off my own bat, bought a ticket for the uh, for I mean, we were in Paris to fly with him to Paris, to Tehran from Paris, and um, uh, I rang the uh, foreign editor to say, look, I've got the tickets, and he said, oh, you know, I'm ordering you not to go, and so I did that hopelessly pathetic business of saying sorry I can't. sorry Rick, you know the line's so bad here you know what the french phones are like but anyway, say, go go i'm trying to ring you back and uh and i got on the plane i mean you know you have you have to do these things and there are times and of course you know uh we actually not just me but m several two or three of my colleagues got one big awards for doing that and there are times when you've just got to say, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm here on the ground. I'm prepared to go. And by the way, I'm I'm going. But they're so nerve-wracked nowadays. I mean, I, I when um, Mosul was uh, under the control of ISIS, I think it, was, it must have been 2016, uh, I wanted to do some filming there. I was in Iraq anyway, and I wanted to go there and do some filming. The head of news uh, at the time um, made me uh, uh, swear uh, uh, um, on my honour, suddenly <laughs> like 1893, <laughs> you know, that I wouldn't go within five miles or something of, of Mosul. And so I I I I I, I swore because uh, you know I'm not I'm, I'm doing anything really, and um, they. Uh, and then I, I realized how to do it. And I 
I just said, look, I'm in the back seat here. I'm, I'm going to go to sleep now. And you just go where you think <laughs> is a good place to go. And so, I, you know, I felt honor was satisfied. I hadn't broken my word of honor. Well, not exactly. And the other guys were all up for going right to the center and, and seeing the whole thing. So I, 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 I think that's what... I mean, I remember uh, I had a, a girlfriend that I lived with for many years, uh, uh, an American uh, television producer, great, great girl. And she said to me, somebody was saying about the dangers of journalism and everything. And she said to me, whoever said that journalism should be a safe profession? If you say that kind of thing, you're in the wrong job. Find another job. There are plenty of people that aren't terribly concerned about their personal safety send them and she was utterly right and i've always quoted that ever since who said journalism is supposed to be a safe profession and that's why i lasted two years in journalism <laughs> doing, uh, states and garden parties and that, that was it but you see you did the honest thing the the stuff the aspect of it i don't like is people who really actually don't want and and why should they want to do dodgy things but find themselves in a position where and it's happened so often. They're the one person that can look after the coverage or something. And then that moment, they decide that it's not a very good idea to stay on. And I, you know, you've got to accept people's decisions. There must never be any question of forcing people to do something which they don't want. That would be absolutely uh, wrong. It'd be wicked. But at the same time, I think you've got to have a kind of coalition of the willing people who yeah. are prepared to do these things. And there's so many of them in so many organizations. And they're the ones that uh, that I I feel, you know, are, are, are to be praised. I, I love the idea you're saying about, I mean, you've literally got more lives than a cat. You literally had 10 lives. Which is, <laughs> but I just, I'm, I, I, I'm guessing, I'm getting this sense of like, I think that the best journalists feel like they have a duty. You know, they feel like they have a duty that kind of transcends everything, really, to to follow these stories and to report the truth from these situations. But without getting sort of too, too dark, and, and, and I hope this is a, an appropriate question, you're in so many of these situations. Did you feel like you were not scared of dying at some point? Or, or, or maybe if I reframe it, did you feel like maybe you would die for the, the story? Well, so of course, you never present it to yourself in that way. But I, I have, I mean, in um, the probably the most dangerous thing uh, place I ever was was uh, in Beirut in 1982 with the Israelis attacking, bombing daily, um, uh, and not being interested in particularly the who they bombed, um, and the Palestinians of uh, the in more extreme factions of the Palestinians hunting down uh, people like me. Um, and that was then I, I remember walking down the street with somebody uh, and uh, I remember thinking, I, I'm probably not going to get through this if I do the job. And I remember thinking then, so do I carry on doing the job or do I do I go home? And I, I just thought, uh, you know, I've been sent here. It costs money to send me here. People are relying on me to do the job. Um, I think I'd just 
better keep on walking. And of course, so often, I mean, you know, I have had these, I've been made to kneel down and I've had, a, you know, been subjected to a, a mock ex execution um, uh, and so on. That was actually in, in Beirut at that time, not uh, uh, during those months. Um, and, um, you know, it, it is it is quite um, quite unpleasant, but somehow or another, I think it's I think it's worth uh, worth risking things for. I really do. I, otherwise, I've got this marvelous friend who works for the for the Times newspaper called Anthony Lloyd. I don't know if you've seen his stuff. He spells it with one L instead of uh, two, um, and he's just magnet. He's what I would like to be and to do. And the Times clearly doesn't tell him what to do. They just say they just nod when he says, "I'm." going off to the, you know, farthest reaches of Afghanistan disguised as a, you know, something. And he always comes back with the superb stories. That's who I would like to be. And I've had this conversation with him, how how much is too much? And, um, I mean, both of us agreed that, we, you know, there probably is a, a point at which it's too much, but neither of us had seen it. Uh, had come to that point and Anthony is still doing all these scenes he's got the most amazing beard and um and he just and you know I wouldn't say I'd say month after month or perhaps every two months or something there it is front page news on the on the times um you know he's found somebody that didn't want to be found or he's interviewed somebody that said more than they ought to have said you know that kind of stuff wonderful wonderful stuff he has got a great beard i've just googled it you're right he's got a fantastic <laughs> beard <laughs> yeah because i must I, I guess john you've been in all these different like you know you've been in war zones you've um you, you've been in very um intense places around the world and i guess do you sometimes i guess when you've been in these difficult situations and you've seen i guess kind of the worst parts of humanity do you sometimes is that a difficult balance for you like only not only emotionally but just sort of being a bit despairing sometimes about the world and and and, and you know you've, you've obviously been in some very difficult places and seen the worst sides of humanity is that something that ever takes a toll on you? I, th I suspect it, it must do. Uh, it does. I, yeah, I think these things do kind of haunt your dreams a bit. Um, all I would say, Giles, and I mean, I detect in you because I follow everything that you tweet and I read, I detect in you the same kind of spirit that I have. It's not that... Um, it's not that for every evil deed, there's a good deed to counterbalance it because it don't doesn't work like that. It frankly doesn't work. And when you think of all the evil deeds that were committed during the Second World War, you'd yeah. never be able to to balance it. And the same is happening with the, in in Ukraine with the Russian soldiers there. Um, but. To take that example, I mean, there are so many uh, Russians who are prepared to stand up, lay flowers on that Ukrainian poet's monument in Moscow, um, apologize publicly, say things that 
God, I'd never had the guts to do in public, uh, shouting out, you know, in court just before their sentence. So the judge goes away and doubles the sentence, all of that kind of thing. It doesn't it it doesn't uh, uh, match individual acts of evil, but it does make you feel that it's not all evil. It's not all wickedness. It's not all cruelty and brutality. That there is some another side of 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 the human uh, psyche, which uh, is behaves magnificently. At, at times of, of 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 trouble and danger, and that that being the case, um, you know, you, you can't forget about the other stuff, but it doesn't make you feel so despairing. I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I, I get a bit emotional when you were talking there, actually, because it, it, it's it's really compelling here when you say that. And I guess as well, in all the situations you've been in, I'm thinking about that correspondent who saved you from the the IRA funeral in all these horrible situations you must have seen so many brilliant moments of, of people being fantastic to each other people reaching out with kindness people saving each other people in moments offering a hand offering a leaf you must have seen so many of those moments even in these dark places i i i really really have um and people that you know you just you've just got to honor and uh and uh, you know we kind of um praise their their memory ordinary people not i i remember uh, i was in um um uh, what's its name um oh dear how really clever you know i'm the world editor world affairs <laughs> editor bbc i can't remember the name where the uh, where where it all happened an appalling um uh uh, genocide and everything with the Tutsis on one side uh, in Rwanda. Rwanda. I mean, it's on every Arsenal shirt, isn't it? I should yes. remember. Um, and uh, uh, Tutsis versus Hutus, and the the Tutsis rose up against the Hutus, and um, uh, awful things happened. I mean, people, I you know, saw the I saw it happen, and I saw the after effects of it. And and then I walked along a, a village street, and I saw a woman um, who was just sweeping up in front of her, and I I, I started to talk to her, and it turned out she was um, a, a Hutu woman. No, she was I think she was a Tutsi woman, and her neighbour was a Hutu, and when the gangs were hunting down the the Hutus and 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 slaughtering them. And she grabbed her next door neighbor and showed her how to hide in a ditch, the ditch that divided her small holding from the neighbor's small holding, and gave her a, a, just a straw, I, I, I don't know, made of what, to, to breathe through. And every night when it got dark, she'd come down and, and give her food and look after. And why? You know? I mean, she could so easily have said, look, it's too dangerous for me. I don't want to get mixed up with this. I'm, I like the woman next door, but it's not my argument. And if any of those gangs had found her helping the woman, I mean, she would have been slaughtered right, right then and there. 
you know, what makes people do these things? I don't know. I, it's one of the most interesting subjects, really. What, what, where does our better, we all know where our worst nature comes from. I mean, I could, you know, I could slaughter the kid opposite for playing loud music. But what makes people put their entire lives and perhaps sometimes the lives of their families on the line just to do what they ought to do. Magnificent. Yeah. yeah the right thing, doing the right thing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's, character. yeah, it's, it, character. and it's a very emotive thing you're saying, John, and I, I, um, I can feel the emotion in you and I, I'm feeling emotional about it because again, often that's maybe something we don't see um necessarily in the mainstream media either um we don't no. get to see those those moments of compassion and and humanity I, I never i didn't report that because i thought it might cause the woman some problems mm. uh, but i should have i bloody well should have uh yeah well um but there are, you know there are and the people that are prepared to go and help when you know, one bomb has gone off and you know that the tactic of these bastards is to put another one directly, yeah. the rescue people work there. Um, but they don't sit back and say, oh, I think we ought to wait here for an hour or so, you know, in case there's another bomb. Um, they go in there. And that we do see, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. yeah, it's... It's, it's, I think it's like, I, I mean, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. Like, and obviously, we are talking to people about sort of difficult moments in their lives and careers. And so, a lot of the stuff we talk about is quite sort of heavy. But one of the overriding themes, I guess, from this pod is that there's a lot of good in the world and people are inherently good, I guess. And that's, I think, sometimes it's really difficult to remind yourself that, and especially if you look on social media and Twitter and, and, and the news and stuff. Like, I think it's just important to remind yourself that there are good people out there in, in your town think, your city and other countries they are they and are also I'd go, I'd go actually go further than that and say um i think almost everybody or at least a big majority of people know that they ought to behave well i i met one of the most awful people i ever met was um it was during the uh, the uh, period of the well, just immediately after the period of the disappearances in Argentina, when something like thirty thousand people were uh, kidnapped, tortured, almost always tortured, and almost always uh, killed, uh, in sometimes in awful ways. And um, I I was there during that period, and I went back afterwards to write a book about it. And one of the people I managed to track down. Um, a man who was at the worst of the torture places. And he looked an absolute brute. I mean, your heart would fail if you, you know, he walked into the room with a set of electrodes, you know. And um, and I I talked to him for a long time. And he had worked out a kind of strategy, mental strategy, for denying that he'd ever actually done anything he'd been there yes he'd helped to kidnap some of the people he'd seen them just before they were tortured and he'd gone out of the room for some reason and he'd come back at the end when the torture had 
finished. And of course, what had really happened was that he had been the torturer, but he knew that that wasn't the right, uh, he knew that was that was wrong yeah. and that he had been wrong to do it. And uh, he was, he was, um, he had already by that stage, I, I interviewed him in jail. So he couldn't have, uh, uh, you know, made his own case worse by that stage. They'd, they'd, they'd seen to him, they'd given him life, I think. And uh, that was going to be it. So he wasn't saying it in order to get a lighter sentence or anything. He was doing it because he knew he shouldn't have been doing any of those things. And he just kind of pretended that he wasn't a part of it because he knew it was wrong. That is fascinating. I mean, the sort of human psyche fascinates me anyway, but the mental gymnastics that yeah, he is exactly. doing to... Yes. How could he... How could he... You know, Why didn't he just say, yeah, I did it and I probably shouldn't have, you know, but to try and pretend he hadn't been there, any of the difficult moments are extraordinary but you're right i mean what a what, what a complicated thing the human brain is isn't it it really is it really is now now john you obviously you've been in lots of conflicts you've seen what's going on in the ukraine now and i know you're you know you're well versed in in vladimir putin and his um his motives and stuff how how do you see things sort of I mean, you might not be able to answer this, but how do you see things currently panning out with that conflict? Well, I'm I'm actually just going back in a uh, a week or so to 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 interview um, um, Zelensky again, and I hope to see be able to travel around a bit. the The newspapers are full of stories which the Ukrainians are 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 pumping out um, that th there'll be a big new um, uh, phase in the war on the around the anniversary twenty no, fourth or twenty third twenty fifth you know something like that I hope to be there when that happens um, it's I mean one thing you know one of the things that really irritates me actually is people saying oh you know we should just have peace well. Uh, of course, we should have peace, of course. But um, it, when a, in a war like this, the only there's only peace when either one side realizes it, it's losing or when both sides realize that they can't win. And we aren't at that stage yet. Terrible thing to say that more and more and more people are going to have to die until it's clear which way the war's going. We thought a month or so ago that it was all going uh, Ukraine's way. Um, it, it, it isn't. Uh, the Russians have got a second breath. They found people who are prepared to give them weapons. Um, and and uh, Ukraine is up against it. If and of course, these are always big ifs. If Ukraine can hold the Russian advances back uh, in, uh, in at the end of next month, um, then I, I think the Russians will have to acknowledge that they're not getting anywhere whatsoever. They're not going to win. And that might be the point at which Putin then starts to to say well maybe we should negotiate something i mean you can see 
uh, you can see the possibility of an outline peace once Ukraine has won. Uh, you could see that, I mean, there are people in eastern Ukraine who really don't want to be Ukrainian. And, you know, it can't be beyond the wit of human uh, intelligence to be able to draw a line around those who want to be part of Russia, voluntarily, actively want to be part of Russia, and those who really, really don't. There are some things which I don't think Ukraine can give up on, uh, which is um, particularly Crimea. I think it has to have Crimea, even though it had a Russian beforehand, it used to have a, a Russian majority. Uh, but nevertheless, people did want to be part, basically wanted it to be part of, of Ukraine. It was taken off them in 2014 illegally by illegal wrong methods which countered all the principles of the united nations i think they 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 can't if they're going to win uh they can't win without having you uh, uh crimea back so but you know honestly if you say this to ukrainians and i don't blame them they go absolutely berserk they want their country as it was the day before russia invaded and i mean that that is, you know, it's so, it must be so right. It's like saying, you know, we're, uh, we're not going to have Northumberland anymore. You know, we'll give it away just simply because somebody else wanted it to take it off us. I mean, there's no there's no um, rationale uh, that, that justifies taking these things off. But, you know, that is what happens at the end of a war. You do get a, a peace. The alternative uh, is that, Putin will, uh, somebody will tap him on the shoulder and say, look, you know, this isn't working. And either, I mean, there's this appalling man, Prigozhin, who runs the um, the Wagner group of mercenaries. He seems to have all sorts of ideas of his own about what he'd like to do. And who knows, he may be the one that taps Putin on the shoulder, in which case it'd probably be even worse than it is under Putin. Alternatively, there may be somebody that approved of the war initially, but now says, you know, it ain't working. We've got to we've got to reach a, a peace agreement. And that the peace agreement will be uh that Ukraine goes back to the, the moment before Russia started stealing its territory. So you know, I'd I'd be I mean, I I'm I've got a bad record of uh of um, uh, prognostication because I always I'm rather uh, I'm too optimistic about things. I always think people come to terms and be sensible and shake hands and for, you know forget it. And of course that isn't often doesn't happen. But that those are two of the possible. I mean I suppose a third possibility is that that Russia would defeat. You, I can't believe that they can with 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 all of that support they're getting from NATO. Mm. Um, I can't see that that uh, that Russia can win this. It's interesting, John. I was going to say because obviously you've, you've you've probably been looking from afar or you know or up close as well with Putin over the years, and obviously he the, the beginning of his uh, um, ruling when he when he took over as president, they were, it was very kind of the, the country became a lot more affluent, and he, they felt like he you know he was sort of integrating Russia into the political sphere of the, in the global sense, um, and that has kind of ebbed away over the years. Are you? 
Were you surprised that this was the eventual outcome? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I, I still find it hard to uh, come to terms with it. I've, I've met Putin on various occasions. I actually met him uh, on the day or one of the earliest days uh, of his political career when he was just the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. Um, can't say I remember much about him, actually, from that time, but I have seen him various times afterwards. Um, always been impressed by his intelligence. Um, and actually, personally, um, just away from everybody, he was really uh, rather pleasant to me and friendly and said he watched the BBC every day to improve his English. There you are. <laughs> That's not something I've based about. I'm not, I won't be telling the Daily Mail about that one. Um, but um, clearly, the that business of... Uh, you know, Russia used to be all powerful, and then the stab in the back, uh, you know, the collapse, uh, all of these things. NATO um, trying to b- b- grab hold of uh, of, of uh, Russia's neighbours. I mean, actually, I've been at some uh, reported on some of those meetings. The NATO people were really reluctant to uh, to take take the any most of these countries in i mean i i wouldn't say all of them i think the the uh, baltic states they were probably uh, thought that they ought to take it but uh, in 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 various other cases it was quite clear that they they were nervous about it didn't want it the idea that nato's gone pushing 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 demanding forcing poland forcing uh, romania uh, bulgaria the others to join um uh, absolute absolute nonsense. I mean, I and I remember hearing George H. W. Bush, the clever one of the two presidents, saying, uh, talking about this precise issue. You know, should we do it? And he said that, you know, it's it it's dangerous because it could inflame Russia. But he said. I remember him saying, how can free one free nation or a group of free nations like NATO say to a country that's so nervous of Russia that it wants NATO membership? Now, nah, we, you know, you're on your own, boys. Um, we, we're, we're not having you. So um, Putin and Putin still seems to have this bitterness about the way that Russia ended. And it seems to have got so much worse. And it seems to have got worse during the COVID period when he was almost on his own. He just had, as far as I know, three people that he that he talked to. And who knows? I mean, I don't know whether he's ill or not. I mean, I you know, I, you read all these stories, but I, I, I've got no indication of that. But um, if he if he isn't well uh, and he's taking some weird pills, um God knows how they may uh, affect him too. But I'll tell you, I've sat listening to a, a, I think it was a four-hour press conference he gave uh, five, six years ago. And, um, I mean, he gives them every year, except this year I noticed he didn't, which may indicate that he is ill. Um, And uh, he'd just sit there and the entire world's press and the entire press of of Russia, which is vast uh were uh, allowed to come and ask questions and um some of the questions were really really complicated about oil 
pricing policy and so on. He didn't have a piece of paper in front of him and he answered brilliantly. He answered questions to people like me about uh, the political direction. And then, you know, there was, I forget what, Ladies Weekly from Smolensk or something. And she put her hand up and he said, yes, the beautiful lady in line three, you know, because, of course, you know, uh, you, you can say those kind of things in Russia where you wouldn't dare say them anywhere else. And the, the uh, lady from Smolensk or whatever said, why are you always putting off getting married? You've got this nice girl. Uh, why, why don't you? Why don't you just marry her and have kids? And um, you know, he answered that, battered that away with great sort of grace and uh, and wit. And you think, what a shame that this man has taken this direction, you know. And it, he hasn't been forced. I mean, nobody wants an angry, violent, dangerous Russia. Um, you know, sorry, I'm bad. No, not at all. No, no, it's it's such fascinating. In, such brilliant insight. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And he's an interesting character, isn't he? Um, hmm. I've got, I got, got two questions, Vesica. I've got one for our public feed and then Giles, I've got a question hmm. for our patrons as well to round off on. But okay. just with all the things you've seen and you've talked so emotionally and I can sort of hear the emotion in your voice recounting so many of these stories but it's such a long career seeing such well I guess a range of horrible things and nice things do you, do you or have you become desensitized to a lot of the sort of horrors that you see is that a thing that all journalists end up doing I don't well I can only really talk about myself I'm one or two close friends who I think would uh, feel the same way about me. On the contrary, I mean, I, I, I'm afraid. It, I think it sensitizes you more, and of course, also getting old um, um, makes you uh, a bit more emotional too. So maybe there's a bit of that as well. But no, I, I feel more kind of emotionally committed to people when you see them suffering. Um, I feel more angry about the brutality and cruelty uh, of the people. I, no, I, I, I don't think it's had that effect on me. It doesn't stop me making jokes about all sorts of things because that um, making jokes is a way in which you you kind of cope with it. I think, um, but uh, no, and I, I mean, to my immense embarrassment. Uh, about a year ago, I was in Afghanistan uh, and I was spending time with a family who genuinely didn't know whether they were going to be able to live through the winter because of, of the hunger that was uh, taking over. And little kids, you know, a kid uh, like my two daughters used to be and like my, a kid the age of my son now. And I, I came back directly from that walk back and uh, did a, a live interview on the Today programme. And um, somebody said, you know, what have you seen? And I started telling you the story. And I, I just had a vision of my daughters and my grandchildren. And, my, and I I kind of choked up. And, and people were very nice about it afterwards. And they said that it, and, and some people said it, it gave them a, a, a real sense of the importance. And, but I felt, and I've always felt ever since it, that was absolutely appalling thing to do. You know, what do you, the BBC spends thousands of 
quid sending people around to weep on television on radio i mean really and i thought of all the sort of grandees of the bbc that i'd known over the years charles wheeler and uh, you know all the the, the, the uh, robin day imagine god getting <laughs> together and you, did you see what that stupid ass <laughs> It just, I've, I've felt bad about it ever since. But um, at least it, 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 I suppose it shows I've not uh, been desensitized. Yeah, quite, this. absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, I think, if, I think people showing emotion, I think, is, is a good thing. You know? And um, as long as they I'm, don't do it too much, I, I don't want to hear it too. Much. I think being a parent, being a parent, just changes you. In, Emotion. I think it makes you more emotional as well. So I think there's there's that element yeah. as well. But oh, oh John, God, it's been oh my God, it's been story. such a such a great pleasure to talk to you, and um, thank oh, you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, it's been pretty and, uh, honestly, Giles, I I do I really love reading your stuff, and it does sometimes when you do feel a bit down or worried, you know, you 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 just manage to get that that positive side of things which um makes life you know just that little bit brighter really. oh that's so, so um, kind of you please don't stop oh, well, that's so kind of you to say and i really really appreciate that thank that's you true. and you're both lovely questions from the two of you my god I, if only you know we could we should do this you know more often oh, oh yeah i'd love to i'll be so many for so, <laughs> you no, to say I'm that really, hear that from you you know what i mean yeah, it's yeah. such a lovely I hope to meet you both. Oh, in the yeah, that would be lovely. Yes, that'd be lovely. Yeah, we'd love that. Yes, please. Thanks, John. John Simpson on the Bank podcast. What a man. What? I mean, literally, it's all I can say. What yeah. a man. Just legend, you know, legend of TV and radio, but also just legend of a person as well. I mean, that was mm. such a lovely chat. It, 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 it was informative. It was emotional. It was funny. I'd say that's 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 one of our best episodes. Ever. Yeah, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And like I say, I got, it was very particularly that story he told about Rwanda and the humanity shown by um, yeah. people from the lady from either the Tutsi or the Houthi and yeah. how they helped their neighbour out who was yeah. um, that that really got me and I could tell it's John, unimaginable you can't even yeah, imagine you can't imagine it can you like the the, the yeah. worst possible circumstances and um, yeah. yeah and obviously he told the story with much uh, with, with the same sort of humanity that he, he witnessed but it, it yeah, I was very emotional, and obviously John was very emotional about it as well. And it was, you know, it was nice that he felt comfortable to talk to us about that. Um, you know, and so many different things he's seen, so many horrendous things that he must have witnessed. But yet he can still come away feeling that there is good in the world, and yeah. that, that you know, like like I I mentioned on the podcast, we don't often get to see that necessarily in the mainstream media, but we know that you know quite a lot of people, or most people, there's good in them. You know, even the worst people, there's some good in there. Um, and that's something I guess we have to cling on to, you know, throughout our lives that, you know, there is better, there is more good in the world than bad. I think as well, like, I think if you're feeling down about the world and and, and I 100% understand because I do as well. And I think it's, as yeah. John said, it's a tough time right now. Mm. If, if there's one person in the world that legitimately 
could feel down about the world, it's John. Yeah. And the fact that he is choosing to find the positive in things, I think is a good indicator for all of us mm. that we can do the same. And that's really my mind, my main takeaway from today. Someone that's seen the atrocities that he's seen still chooses to believe the best in, not just like most people, in all people, I think is a really powerful takeaway from today's episode. Yeah, I mean, if you've been nearly killed many times and blown up, as he said once, and you've, oh God, you go, oh my, go on like Wikipedia and see the number of things that John has witnessed, you know, Tiananmen Square, Iraq, Afghanistan, front lines in war zones, Ukraine. He said, he told us he's like, he's off to the Ukraine again um, yeah. very soon to, to interview Vladimir Zelensky. So like he's, he's on the front line. Uh, of the work most you know most dangerous situations possible and yet he's still choosing to be able to yeah. see the best in stuff you know and so that's that says a lot about the man absolutely absolutely um i've got to go because someone's dropping on some new car keys for me so nice <laughs> sorry sh- sorry to change tack my friend paul my car key's broken my friend paul from down the road has oh, well done, finally paul. bought me some new ones well bought me the shell he's going to come around and try and fix it cool again. well we'll um, go then he's a legend paul um anyway thank you to john so much for, for sharing his i mean immense insight and just being a legend and and thank you to our listeners and our patrons of course we love this extra yeah, uh, extra of, story with oh, it's a john good, really oh, good one this week good. really good at our patron at patreon.com slash bank podcast and thank you giles you know for uh just just being you it's nice seeing your face every every Friday. well likewise jim and you know it's our little therapy session but you know i took so much away from today's conversation like you said i'm gonna like you said at the top of the of the pod that it's gonna stay with you i think it's certainly gonna stay with me today as well definitely definitely and we'll stay with you next week listeners uh, did that work doesn't really work um <laughs> with another guest on the blank podcast until then take care of yourselves and most importantly Giles, don't get cancelled Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.